Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me your host Chloe Timms. In this episode I'm talking to Sean Lusk about his historical novel The Second Sight of Zachary Cloudsley. Sean is an award-winning short story writer who has spent much of his career working as a civil servant for the UK government. He's also lived and worked in England, Pakistan, Egypt, South Africa and rural Greece. In this episode we talk about pushing further on emotions to find the real story in an idea, choosing language carefully to make historical fiction immersive, and how it took Sean until he was on his third agent to get a book deal. But first, here's Sean with an excerpt from The Second Sight of Zachary Cloudsley. When he has poured tea into their cups and the babies are fed and settled, he says what he must. Mrs Morley, It is very kind that you have taken Zachary into your home. Irritated, she interrupts. He is not weaned. No, Mrs Morley. If you have found another wet nurse, so be it. But it is not good for an infant to go from one breast to another. They can sicken. I am only saying. You must do as you wish. I am thinking of Zachary, not of myself. She puts him in mind of a swan disturbed in its swim, raising its head indignantly and beating its wings in an agitation. I know, Mrs Morley, you've taken good care of my son, and I would that you continue to. She looks at him doubtfully, lifting her cup to her lips, but placing it back on the saucer without taking a sip. But my son must come to Leadenhall. He must come home. Not with me, he won't. But Mrs Morley, don't you Mrs Morley me, Mr Cloudsley, she says, bristling. If you will have me feed and tend your boy, it must be here. But why, Mrs Moore? Madam, why? I should rather starve than abandon my own little one. You do see that, don't you? I'm not farming out my girl to be fed sugar water by some gin-soaked slut. Nor should you. I would would never ask you to leave your own little one behind. No, you and Leonora shall both come to live at Leadenhall. Mrs Morley purses her lips. I have other reasons for keeping my own rooms. Yes, I do not ask you to understand my motivations. I can strive to do so. Mrs Morley and he are about the same age, he supposes. Almost thirty and no longer young. Her red hair is already flecked with grey and 
Were it not for the palsy having dragged down one side of her face, she would be a woman of striking handsomeness. Not beauty, for that is different. He thinks again that she has more the look of a Greek goddess with her pained dignity. And there is something majestic about her, if troubled. The goddesses had their troubles too, after all. I have not always had a happy life, Mr Cloudsley, she declares. Not as happy as I have now. I have not burdened you with my history. You have not asked, and I would not expect you to. Her tone is matter of fact, as if she were talking of someone else, a person of little interest to either of them. You know that I am widowed. Yes, madam. We have that bond, have we not? She gives him a look so withering that Abel feels himself shrivel. I married badly, Mr Cloudsley. I married in order to escape an unhappy home. My father was a violent man. Violent, she repeats, raising a hand to make clear her meaning, her green eyes blazing in recollection of what he did to her, of what she suffered. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here with me today to discuss your debut novel, The Second Sight of Zachary Cloudsley. It's lovely to be here, Chloe. Yeah. So could you start by telling us what The Second Sight of Zachary Cloudsley is about? Yes, apologies. It's a bit of a mouthful of a title, isn't it? <laughs> um, the Second Sight of Zachary Cloudsley is um, it's set in the mid-18th century in London and Constantinople. At its heart, it's, it's a father-son love story, really. So in the opening pages of the novel, which isn't any spoilers, Zachary's mother dies in childbirth, as has happened uh, tragically so often uh, in, in the 18th century. And his father is a maker of clocks and automata, these incredible clockwork, almost like the forerunners of computers. And uh, Abel really struggles to, to, to raise Zachary and be a good dad to him. But he's very distracted and he struggles. He's helped by um, a midwife who makes her appearance in, in chapter one, Grace Morley, who becomes a very important character in the, in, in the book. Not a midwife, a wet nurse, I should say. But another person on the scene is Aunt Frances. And Frances uh, is, is a widow of a baronet. She has a large house and she's the keeper of the largest owl collection in England. And she's an astronomer and a proto-feminist. And she has very certain ideas about how Zachary should be raised. And so this tussle developed in the early part of the book between Abel and Francis on how to raise uh, young Zachary. And during that time, there's an accident in a workshop and Abel agrees that, that, that Zachary be safer being raised by Francis. And Abel, uh, Zachary's father, is spirited away to Constantinople where he's sort of cajoled, coerced into becoming a spy for the, for the British government on, in the Ottoman court. And um, really the rest of the novel as it unspools is about Zachary uh, not, not believing that his father has disappeared as he's told and striving to find and sort of rescue his father. Yeah, just that description there. And there's so many things I want to dive into and talk to you about. But I first I want to talk about the kind of genesis of this novel, because I noticed at the back of your book, you described this as a novel that evolved from a truly terrible first draft your words mm. not mine so can you please tell us about that how did this idea come to you and how does it evolve from that terrible first draft yeah I think it's probably true for a lot of writers and I think it's very I think the, the key to good writing is sort of knowing how bad your first drafts are I love 
you know, drafting the novel, but as soon as I sort of feel like, you know, you write those words, the end, I think right now, it, now the work starts. And I, I enjoy editing as well. The, the genesis of this novel, I've written sort of probably three novels before, none of which been published, you know, at least two of which should absolutely never see the light of day. Maybe, maybe one should. But um, with this novel, uh, I was in Istanbul, uh, as we call Constantinople these days, and there was this clock um, and it had on it George Clark Leadenhall. And it may even have had the date, but I certainly looked it up because I was so intrigued. It was in a sort of dusty back alley. Why is there this sort of clock made in London sitting here? And then I discovered all this amazing stuff. This is the, the, the danger with historical research about the trade between Britain and the Ottoman Empire in the 18th century. I had no idea there was this company called the Levant Company, which at one time had been bigger and more important than the East India Company. Uh, then about sort of attitudes towards Islam in, in, 18, in the 18th century, which changed quite significantly actually during the course of the century for various reasons. And then conceptions of time itself. So uh, why were clocks suddenly really important in the Ottoman Empire? And in fact, why were clocks so important in the 18th century? You know, every town in Britain pretty much had a clockmaker because clocks were hard to transport on bumpy wagons, but people wanted to know the time. Um, in, in the Islamic world, it was more to do with prayers, all of that. Anyway, I sort of wrote this book that was trying to talk about time and it was trying to talk about Christianity and Islam. It was trying to talk about uh, trade and war. And, and of course, it was just this almighty mess. And I think historical fiction that is overburdened with its research or the research sort of sits visibly on the page is, isn't fiction I enjoy reading. And then, yeah, so, so the key was to sort of find a different approach, yeah. So did you kind of find your way through this almost tome of research that you'd written to work out what the story was or did a character come to you? How did it, how did that appear? Because I, I know what you mean about being bogged down in research. Where did those kind of characters appear from? Yeah, I think it was, um, so I, I, the, probably the first chapter isn't all that different to the first chapter of the, the, the bad draft. Um, but, you know, I heard the baby, the sound of the baby and sort of smelt the smoky March morning in London and, and the father below beneath the window and this baby crying. And I realised, of course, the novel had to be just about that baby, the father, and the two or three other really important characters in the book. And as soon as I just focused on the characters and what they were feeling, the novel lifted off. But I should say one other really important thing happened, and it was probably just before lockdown happened, but it was over Zoom anyway, even pre-lockdown, um, was getting a mentor. So my mentor was Liz Jensen. Uh, who's a writer that some some people will have read. I love her book, um, The Rapture and Ninth Life of Louis Drax and so on. Um, and the very first thing Liz said to me at the beginning of the mentoring was, Sean, you know, and she'd read like quite a big chunk of the book, at least 10,000 words. And she said, you're terrified of writing a sentimental sentence, aren't you? That was her <laughs> first words to me. And I, that, and I, I love a challenge. And I thought, and I went, wow, I, I suppose I am, yeah. And she said, right, you'll never write a sentimental sense, don't worry, but push the emotion. You know, in a novel, the reader has to feel what your characters are feeling. 
Um, and it was the most important thing anyone had ever really said to me about, about writing, because mm -hmm. as soon as I pushed the emotion, everything just lifted off, you know. Yeah, and emotion is so key, particularly when we talk about, you said that it's a love story basically between father and son and Abel and Zachary's relationship is so central. It's such the driving force. And particularly when you open with such a heartbreaking first chapter, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about their relationship and how it changes and develops throughout the novel without too many spoilers. <laughs> yes, without too many spoilers. But I think, I mean, one or two readers have said, oh, you know, uh, I mean, it's really interesting. One of the most lovely things about, you know, being a writer, becoming a writer, you know, is how you get feedback directly from your readers sometimes to drop your line. Or, um, and I love the way, you know, people have said I particularly loved, you know, a lot of people like Aunt Frances, you know, but, but people, some people have loved Abel, even though Abel isn't the strongest or most powerful character. And I suppose... I, you know, I hope all my characters feel quite real. And for me, Abel, you know, he's not a, a perfect and heroic man. He's a good man with, you feel he's got a good heart. He's got integrity, I think from early on in the book and he want, and he loves his, his son, but he makes some terrible mistakes as a dad, you know, um, and you're sort of, you know, you can tell that he's distracted. He's, he's, uh, and he recognizes this in himself. So I think that, um, and of course, you know, he and Zachary are separated. As so many, you know, mothers and sons and daughters and fathers are separated from each other. And how, what that does to a relationship, it both makes you wonder about each other, know each other less. You know, actually, Zachary doesn't really know his father from the age of five until much later in the book, without any spoilers. And um, so... And he's told lots of things about his father that being a rather special child, he kind of doesn't quite believe. Um, so, so there is this tension. I mean, Zachary is a sort of very exceptional, gifted, strange child, which I hint is really inherited from, from his mother, who was herself quite a strange person. Abel is very talented uh, with languages and very talented as a clockmaker. Um, but uh, perhaps he's not really emotionally talented. And I think you see that through the book. Mm. Well, you've talked about Aunt Frances, and I think I would have to put my hands up and say she was probably my favourite character just for her, uh, the way she was just so eccentric and just so much fun to read. And I've seen a lot of your reviews actually talk about almost this Dickensian cast of characters that you've got, these almost larger-than-life characters. So I was wondering, because there's there's an element of kind of of humor in in your writing um and like i said their eccentricity and how do you create that in characters because you said that obviously this first scene came to you almost sensually you you could you could smell it you could feel it but what about the characters did you did you kind of do almost like write character sketches about them how did you kind of formulate these these kind of weird and wonderful characters well, uh, well, that's that's another um, thing that I should probably credit um, Liz Benson <laughs> for, because, you know, we all know because, you know, if you're a writer, unless you sort of, you know, wake up one morning at the age of 18 and write an amazing book. But, you know, you, you you've been on courses, you studied, you read all the amazing books about writing and you know that you should really plot and you should plot, you know, do a in-depth you know you're asked to do things like with each of your characters would you know what they were carrying in their wallet or in their pockets and where they went to school and who their first where they had their first kiss and all those things 
Um, but Liz really pushed me to, to do some of those things with this, this novel. Um, so I have um, this sort of huge, like 30 feet long sheet of, I all stuck together, but had sort of, for each of the main characters, sort of spidergram with those sort of questions answered and a sort of plot plan. Uh, which was almost Dickensian because, as you know, Dickens did, because he had to, because they were published um, every fortnight, I think. So he often had this detailed plot plan because he was writing the book as it was being published. Um, so I sort of had a kind of plot, plot plan for this novel. But I look back at it quite recently. Actually, I look back at it um, for the Between the Covers um, thing that's going to be on in a, in a couple of weeks, I think. And we sort of did some filming. like that. And uh, I looked at it and I realised that almost none, <laughs> nothing really from that plot plan. In the end, it was good to do it. And I had it in the back of my mind, a bit like my research, you know, I have it in the back of my mind, but I'm not constantly going back to it. So I didn't really go into it again, but I think thinking quite deeply about the characters helped. And I have to say that there were two characters uh, and you'll know this feeling, Chloe, as a writer, that when you're having a good day, you're not really doing the writing, the writing is writing itself. And I'd say for both Aunt Frances and Grace Morley, when, when they were in the room with me, they were in the room and they were telling me what they were saying and what they were thinking. And it, honestly, it didn't feel like I was doing it. With the others, I, I sort of felt like I was writing them. Mm -hmm. But with those two, they, they just were themselves. It, they were like ghosts in the room who, who were present, yeah. That strikes me as really funny because A, you're the second person I've interviewed this week that's had that experience and I think we all do even though I used to think that was just such a kind of weird writer thing to say and I couldn't really believe it but I, I totally buy into it and mm. also I think um Francis and Grace were such strong characters to me I mean they all are but those two had had something special about them so it must have been this kind of voices from the beyond speaking to you while you were writing it maybe yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering then obviously you did a little bit of kind of character well, you did quite a bit of character work that possibly didn't make it into the novel but Frances I'm, I'm as quite an unusual character you know with her owls and her various birds and things were you kind of consciously thinking I've got to make her a little bit zany and a bit odd or was that just something that felt right as you were working on her well I have to <laughs> Confess that, and and actually, this is uh, you know assuming that the the, the novel isn't sort of um, massively changed in editing. Um, so, uh, Aunt Fran the inspiration for Aunt Frances came from Mary Wortley Montague, who um, some people will know, an absolutely amazing woman uh, who uh, lived in the first half of the eighteenth century, and uh, she was a, a poet, a writer. A campaigner, she br brought smallpox inoculation back uh, from her travels in Turkey. And the reason I um, knew about Mary was really because in research novel, one of the things I read was Mary Wortley Montague's um, uh, Turkish embassy letters. And um, uh, I sort of had kind of forgotten that was the case when I was writing Francis, but because I'm now writing a novel that's inspired, well, very much based on Mary's life, I want to sort of bring her back because I think. She's, she should be a major historical figure in British history, and she isn't, I think mainly because she was a woman. Um, and, uh, and she was, uh, you know, a pretty eccentric figure. Um, she didn't have an owl collection, but I mean, uh, so I mean, you know, Francis is, is, is Francis, she's not, not Mary, but 
the voice, if you read, uh, if you read Mary's writing, Mary's letters, and well, we don't have her diaries. That's partly why I'm writing the novel. Her diaries were, were destroyed by her daughter because her daughter thought they'd be too scandalous, really. Um, but um, that sort of incredible vivacity and originality of thought that Mary had, I suppose I wanted to bring to Francis. And Mary was totally unafraid of everybody. She did, she knew everybody. She made her views clear to everybody. So, um, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't conscious of it, but now I've gone back and I'm looking so much at Mary's life. I thought, oh yeah, Aunt Francis really is a sort of projection from, from this woman that really lived. I'm just remembering now, there's a bit where uh, Francis is writing table and she's basically invited herself to his house and it's like, don't bother, you know, writing to me. I'm, I'm coming on this date. And I just thought that was fantastic. Like yeah. that kind of personality just comes through in, in the way that uh, you kind of wrote about her. And that was one thing I was going to ask you about, actually, it was point of view, because you're, I'm, I think I'm writing saying that most of your chapters are third person, but Grace, who is the wet nurse, her chapters are written from the first person. So was that something that you, was like a gut decision or what, did you kind of experiment with point of view? How did that um, transpire? Yeah, well, I definitely have experimented. And again, I think most, most writers will do, do this as well. You know, I probably wrote the whole novel in third person, past tense then, because quite a lot of it's in present tense, which a few people haven't, haven't you know, some people like, some people don't. And, um, uh, uh, and uh, you know, probably wrote the whole thing in first person, and it just felt right to have, you know. So you, we shift point of view quite a bit, and generally in sort of close third person. But um, it just felt right to have Grace in first person. So it was a sort of gut decision. But then, although in some ways it's quite a conventionally written novel in its sort of fairly classical sort of form. Um, you know, I'm a short, short story writer as well, and those tend to be quite experimental. Mm. Um, and I'm a great believer. I, th I think, you know, good writing, actually, really good writing depends on constantly experimenting, playing with form and pushing the whole, you know, the, the whole form of writing, you know, so there's a lot of talk about, you know, so flash fiction is very popular, uh, 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 flashy novella. And then, you know, for instance, Claire Keegan's wonderful uh, shortlisted novel, Small Things Like These, which I adored. I mean, you know, it, it was shortlisted as a novel for the book, but I mean, barely qualifies as a novella. It's so short and yet it's so big, you know. So, yeah, so a long answer. But yeah, I suppose it was my, a little bit of playing with form and point of view and, and tense and so on, I think is, I like in a novel. Yeah, so there's a, slightly fantastical element to this novel, um, a, a slightly magical edge, I suppose. So could you tell us the role that this plays in the story and why did you decide to add that little fantastical twist, I suppose? Yeah, it's that's a sort of interesting question because I, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, suppose, I suppose I knew that there'd be automata in the novel from very early on. And that, that's a whole other kind of area, how, how that sort of developed and how, you know, learning about automata has been uh, incredible. And there is a kind of magic in automata because although they really existed and, and most of the automata that feature in the novel are based on, on, real, on real automata that existed. 
And we're, we're writing, you know, by the mid 18th century, very firmly in the age of reason where people were sort of rejecting magic, magic and so on. But as you learn more about the world of automata, you realize that you can almost plot a path from kind of the end of the age of sort of mystery and witchcraft and so on, let's say in the middle of the 17th century or whatever. And then, you know, you have this sort of Newton and the triumph of reason and then the great tech, you know, beginnings of great technological advances and so on. And you get these automata that were really remarkable, but obviously were hugely expensive and generally commissioned by royal houses or very wealthy people. Um, but you can almost trace a path all the way through to Mary Shelley uh, and, and Frankenstein, actually. And it's almost certainly the case that when she was, you know, for several weeks on, on by a rainy lake Geneva with uh, Shelley, right, you know, they all were writing their different stories and, and Mary Wollstonecroft, as she was then, uh, daughter of the older Mary Wollstonecroft, of course, um, what, you know, she visited uh, an amazing automata uh, workshop in Neuchâtel. Um, so I suppose the, that partly gave me the sense there's some, there is magic around people. There are all sorts of incredible things. I mean, it's not in, in this novel, um, but there are all sorts of strange stories that you think, wow, I thought these people were so rational and, you know, they're, <laughs> They're measuring, you know, they're, they're measuring the circumference of the earth and observing eclipses, they're exploring. And yet they thought Mary Toft in 1724 had given birth to rabbits. Um, so I sort of wanted to capture some of that spirit of people believing magic. And I must say when I draft, I think people can still decide whether there really is magic or not, whether Zachary really sees into people's thoughts or not. Um, but I would say that was something the editor kind of did she did push me into a bit more of the magic realism than I probably had originally so it's a little bit more magical than I probably mm. originally drafted yeah because I mean it's subtly done like you say I think there is an element that you could it could be uh it could be real it could not be real but I think that's that's the fun when you use it in a in a very sort of subtle way so um I I enjoyed that element of it I wanted to ask you about your extensive research because obviously you you mentioned at the start how much you did just when you were starting out that the kind of I think is a temptation of getting bogged down in just the sheer amount of fact and knowledge that you have to know and you do talk about your process a little bit in the back of your book but I wondered how you went about this huge task because not only are you setting the novel in England you're setting it in uh Constantinople like how did you even begin to research this huge novel uh yeah how did I begin <laughs> well you know I spent a bit of time wandering around Istanbul which is an amazing city I mean you don't have to do a lot of work in Istanbul because the history is there and it screams at you from every corner particularly in the you know in the old parts of the town which although it's now a massive modern city, Sultan Ahmed, where, where the Hagia Sophia is and, and the mosque and so on, it's, it, it's perfectly preserved and, and hardly changed. I mean, apart from, you know, ice cream vans and stuff. And, and actually uh, Galata, Pira, where all the embassies were, where the European, the Western Europeans were required to live, hasn't changed. And my job in, well, I mean, ages ago, but I did used to work, I, um, on and off, you know, I did bits of work in Istanbul, so I knew the city well, and, and had, had been able to wander around inside some of the buildings, like the British uh, uh, consulate there, 
which actually wouldn't work strictly speaking in timing terms, but um, is an amazing, amazing uh, building also it was when I, I sort of walked around it. So I had sort of, there were bits that I just sort of absorbed. Um, I suppose the 18th century is a period I love anyway and had studied um, in the past. But the other thing is, I think I'm quite strict with research and I tend to think, right, I'll do research and I'll read and read and read for say three months mm-hmm. and that's it. I won't do it. I won't keep research, you know, I'll put it away. I mean, you know, I'll pick things up to check, you know, to check a book or with Zachary, I went several days to the British Library um, and although so much stuff's digitized, you know, to go into the um, uh, reading rooms and particularly the antique reading room, you know, the, uh, what do they call them, but where the very old documents are and be able to sort of see these really old, you know, letters and just to touch, just to see them and be with them sort of gives you, I think as a writer, just some extra charge. So that was good. But, um, you know, my previous job as a civil servant for many years, you know, whatever the task was, whatever the policy field was, you know, and I'd say to, to my colleagues as well, if we had to prepare something, a big policy issue for ministers, and it was like six months where I'd say, right, we'll do, you know, three months research, we'll talk to everybody, we'll talk to think tanks, we'll look at every select, everything, and then we'll stop because we need to start writing and clearing it and getting colleagues' contributions. So, and equally, if it was a week away, I'd say, right, we've got two days to do everything, and then we've got to start writing and clearing with colleagues. So it's sort of, I'm okay with the idea of research as a kind of project because I, I suppose it was my job for a long time. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
And what about the kind of practicalities of what what you leave in and what you take out? Do you think that's something that you had a gut feeling for that once you'd done a couple of drafts, you were able to say, I think a lot of it is about kind of trusting the reader and, and deciding what, what they need to know. But how did you find that process? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've got quite low tolerance of historical research that where you can see it sitting mm-hmm. on the page. I just, uh, and you know, there are some really good books, but I find myself put off if after 30, 40 pages, I'm thinking, I don't want to be told any more about, you know, I know you've done your research on exactly how they buttoned up their coats in 1560, but, you know, I've got it now. Yeah. I, I can see it and I don't want to be told any more about it. Uh, because it's got to be the story that's absolutely paramount. But at the same time, you mustn't make mistakes. So if I, you know, again, if I'm reading, and I mean, I say historical fiction, but I mean, it could be a police procedural. It could be, a, but if you see something, oh, oh no, that's not right. Or in historical fiction, it feels really anachronistic. Um, you just think, no, that's a word. So I, one thing I do a lot, and it's great to have a, a sort of, fes, uh, be able to check etymology when you're online. Mm-hmm. But if I use a word, I will always think, hang on, that word, did, were they using that in 1720 or something, whatever it is? And you can check so quickly uh, when it was when it's used. And then I'll also just say, but does it, oh, so they were using it. Uh, so there's words like dad and uh, loads of words that, that feel very modern that were absolutely used. But then I think, is the reader going to think it's not what they, how they would have spoken? Is it going to snag? So all that stuff I try to make sure isn't there so that the, so that the reader is just immersed in the story and, and isn't distracted, really. But at the same time, feels when they've got to the end of the book, not only did I enjoy the book and I cared about the characters, but I'm kind of, I've learned something and I trust this writer that, that, that what, what mm. he said is, is kind of right. Yeah. Absolutely. I love what you said there about choosing words that not only were accurate for the time period but also as a reading experience feel accurate and I I recently done a historical fiction writing course and we were talking about that and I think that's such an interesting thing because you can read a word that is completely authentic for the time period but like you say totally takes you out of the reading because you think oh that just feels far too modern and it doesn't yeah. feel right and that is a, I think that's a skill in itself when you're writing historical fiction to, yeah. to know the difference between accuracy storytelling and also the feeling and the the atmosphere that you're building as well absolutely i've perfectly expressed i must say and swear words my god i mean <laughs> all our swear words now they had you know they've been in regular use well we know a lot were in chaucer and stuff you know they've been in regular use um but they don't feel they they mo- if you put those they just will feel modern to most mm-hmm. readers and of course, you've got some wonderfully juicy <laughs> swear words that were common in the 17th and 18th centuries, which of course are delight- <laughs> delightful to put in and f- will feel to the reader much more authentic and more fun as well. So, yeah. More fun for you to choose. Yeah, much that. more fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't do all, I, there are not that many in Zachary, but I, in the first page or two, I've got the word lobcock which of course we don't use anymore, but was a, a lovely swear word from the 18th century. <laughs> we can bring it back. <laughs> so I read another interview with you where you said that you didn't even really begin writing until you were almost 40 years old. So when did novel writing become a dream for you? 
Yeah, good question. I think, um, so I, I mean, I always thought I'd love to be a writer and it was probably only when I was, anyway, maybe in my late 30s, I thought, oh, I better write something then. <laughs> Obviously, I was writing a lot for my job, you know, like most people, most writers, a lot of writers worked as copywriters or whatever it might be. And, and in my case, it's sort of writing, you know, policy papers and speeches and things. So um, different sort of writing. And then I started, I went on a course actually, just like an evening class, I think it was. And uh, the, the tutor said, oh, you know, you, you can write and you should think about doing um, a sort of undergraduate creative writing degree. So I, I did start doing that, but then sort of work on the way and other things. But I started writing short stories. And then when I got um, the first short story published, I would have been about 40. And I went off to Ireland uh, for a, there was a prize giving and there was a course and there was this author there called David Means, who's an American short story writer. It was a course with him and he was very good. But he sort of pointed to an imaginary shelf and he said, you know, these are my three unpublished novels before I got my first sort of novel published. And I thought, oh, that won't happen to me, you know, hubristically. And of course, it's precisely what I'm done. It's taken 20 years. But um, and part of the issue for me, I think, and this is what what. Liz Jensen really sort of pushed me out of doing I was uh, you know I was writing not novels that were extended short stories really and and so and it's such a totally different form mm. um, you know I think short stories which I still adore and I love writing and I love reading um, but they really good ones succeed on what they withhold not withhold necessarily but it's all the things that aren't there you know, because of, partly because of the concision, but also the skill is to hint at emotions, to hint at words that have been unsaid. Um, so that when you finish that, that short story, it grows in your mind and you think, I wonder why she said yes when she obviously meant no, or did, did they actually have that accident? Or was it just in there, you know, you, you're left with sort of mystery. And that's to me, the joy of a short story. And it's one of the reasons why it's hard to read more than one or two at a time because they, they fill your head. But I think a novel, you know, it has to be a complete world. Not to say that you might not think about it often afterwards, but you, the reader wants a fully rounded world where the motivations of the characters, when you're going to be spending, you know, days with a novel, even weeks perhaps, you know, you, you, you want to really understand those characters and understand what makes them tick. And I think that it took me, sadly, it took me a long time to learn that lesson. Well, I know you've had great success with your short story writing and, and won competitions and things, but I read that you said that it was the the kind of success of having these short stories published and, and receiving um, encouragement and being shortlisted or being a runner-up was the thing that gave you confidence to continue. But with novel writing, as you said, it's it's more of a marathon and you've got to work when it's much longer and you're not getting that kind of uh, feedback necessarily or encouragement after 10,000 words. So how did you keep going through this long process? You're so right, Chloe. <laughs> and I mean, just on the point about, I mean, why would a, you know, not, it's, it's certainly true. In fact, not many novelists are good short story writers and probably not many good short story writers are necessarily good novelists. I think they are different. I mean, there are some who are brilliant to both, like Sarah Hall or, or you know, we could probably run through lots of names. But I'm, one reason I'd say is good to, you know, be writing and getting things 
published either in competitions or you know just submit to journals and things is, is actually for that feedback because as a writer you need a bit of positive reinforcement <laughs> because goodness knows there's enough rejection and and hanging about as you say it's a, a it's a long slog how so how did I keep going I think I, th I think the key is you've got to love what you write uh, which isn't to say that everything you write is going to be brilliant or you're going to love what you have written day by day you know you might be going oh no but you've got to you know don't do it unless you love the act of writing and you're writing something that you really enjoy writing and of course that can be true so it doesn't matter whether it's literary or historical or very commercial or a thriller you know hopefully everyone doing those things and I guess for some incredibly successful writers who are having to write you know you know a book a year without fail it might become very much a task but it, even I think from, you know just love what you write love the process of writing accept that that it is a long haul not just for a single book but actually you know I keep hearing of writers you know who it was book number six that was their liftoff mm. book book number five or so you know as long as you've got a publisher that's willing to keep publishing you and an agent that's willing to keep working with you and selling you then that's what keeps you going really and and one other thing I should mention is writing buddies that's so important uh, so I'm in two different groups um, one of which I'm going away for a week in a couple of weeks time and uh, it's it's just so restorative you know and it's a mixture of poets and prose writers but just to spend time and obviously we can we can give emotional support to each other uh, yeah. but also just hearing each other's work and and a group that's honest enough to say yes give you some positive reinforcement or say that character doesn't work so this group for instance I'm going away with it was they who said whatever it was two years ago in early drafting uh, I was Aunt Frances wasn't going to live for very long <laughs> and they said no we love Aunt Frances you've got to keep writing Aunt Frances she's got no 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 keep writing Aunt Frances you know so they told me that 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 was the key character yeah. you, you sort of need writing friends if, mm. if you can find them you know I think it's really good. I read such an interesting interview with you where you said that obviously this novel was not your first attempt at being published and you've actually had three agents so I was wondering whether you could share your publishing journey kind of to date and also maybe reassure any listeners who are feeling like it might never happen for them. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm a good example of, you know, I, I think one thing I've put in a few sort of interviews is persist, you know, do mm. persist. Um, I mean, not if you're not enjoying it because, there's, you know, there's probably too many people writing books uh, and uh, there's plenty of other lovely things you can do. But if you love writing, and you're constantly developing your skill and recognizing that you've always got to be improving and, and getting feedback and honest feedback and, you know, meeting other writers, reading as much as you can, obviously. Um, I mean, I would, so I did, um, I've done various different courses. Um, so, you know, a lot of people do master's degrees. Some of them are really famous, like at UEA and Balspa and so on. Um, but that's a big commitment. It's a lot of money. Uh, and I think they vary a lot. So you you need, you know, you really need to look. I did quite a lot of Arvon courses and courses at the Welsh Centre, Tinaw. Uh, 
with different tutors and I learned a lot there. They, again, they're quite costly, although there's burs usually bursaries available. So, um, you know, if, if you are uh, on a low income or in an underrepresented group, there's a lot of help available. So, and, and that's something I'd say, uh, particularly to people um, from underrepresented groups or on low incomes, is there's a lot of help out there. Don't be afraid to ask because there's, there is money there um, quite, you know, rightly to be, to, to support you. Um, uh, and more recently, I did, you know, Curtis Brown Creative course, which led to me getting a mentor and so on. So there's, there's so many different things out there and it's a matter of finding what's right for you and getting personal recommendations. But after an Arvon course, not long after that first short story, so about 20 years ago, um, one of the tutors was a writer called Barbara Trapido, some people I know, and she said, oh, I know just the agent for you. He's called David Miller, and David sadly uh, died very young um, a few years ago at the age of 50. But she said, uh, oh, yes, uh, ring him, you know. So I rang him. I thought that's what you did. <laughs> I, I was so naive. And now you know that you have to, you know, have your book completely done and, you know, pitch letters and write five pages at a time and all of that. I just rang up and said, oh, hello, can I speak to you? And I said, oh, hello. Um, I've just been on a course with Barbara Trapido and she said you should be my agent. And he said, oh, well, if Barbara says so, of course, come and have lunch more. I think that was pretty Amazing. much Which was both a good thing and a bad thing because although he was a you know, wonderful agent, very, you know, very well known and, and delightful company, he, he didn't really ever sort of offer me any editorial advice. Uh, and yeah, I mean, he did a bit, but uh, you know, I'd write a pretty bad novel and then he just sent it out and it wouldn't get published. So that wasn't really the answer. And um, in time, you know, we absolutely by friendly mutual agreement, I mean, I prompted and said, I'm not sure this is really working and so on. And, um, and I was writing, you know, I was working on an academic book at the time anyway. And so I sort of gave up for a while. Then my next agent um, who is, you know, very different, absolutely fantastic. Um, and uh, but she really was keen to edit and work on the editorial side a lot. Um, but in the end, after working together for I don't know, probably three or four years and having a very good relationship, I think. But again, we just decided it wasn't really working. Um, and I'd certainly lost sight, really, of what, it, what I was trying to do editorially. Um, and now I have David Headley as an agent who is a different sort of agent again, you know, really well connected, also runs a bookshop. So what I'd say to people looking for agents is really think carefully, really get lots of advice and, you know, do courses. I mean, obviously you can do courses online now, which are generally more accessible and, and less costly. Um, you know, there's, there's, certainly, there's obviously there's Chris Brown, I do, there's the Faber Academy, there's... Um, the novelry, there's so, so many places now giving you really solid advice on how to, you know, but finish your novel first, make it as good as you can, because an unfinished novel is a terrible thing to start submitting because then you get into a mess. Um, and ideally get yourself in a position if possible where you can choose between two or three agents you're interested in your work because choosing the right agent that's gonna do the best job for you is important and difficult and it's difficult actually to 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 know what who's going to be the best person for you and i wondered if there's anything that you know now that you're a published author that you wish you'd perhaps had zachary's foresight to know 
<laughs> what a good question. There's <laughs> hundreds of things <laughs> because, you know, I'm old and, you know, pretty experienced uh, um, and quite worldly wise. And I, uh, and I have a lot of writing friends, I'm, you know, absolutely blessed to have good friends who are writers, many of whom have been through this uh, for years, some very, you know, pretty well known and successful, a lot, you know, struggle, you know, less success, you know, struggling, but so I should have known and I should have listened more carefully, perhaps. But, but you just can't, the stuff you can know, of course, you can know how, you know, you can know how to write, you know how important it is to structure, but all those things. And you can learn a bit about the publishing industry and the different, but until you're actually being published, you sort of, there's things like the role of the editor vis-a-vis -vis the role of a publicist and a marketer and as a sales team. And if, you know, if you're with a very small publisher, sometimes that might be better because some, some of those are run by two or three people. And yet they're incredibly successful at getting books, prizes, and they're very dedicated. But, you know, you're not going to get an advance, you know, you're not going to get much in advance at all. And you may never earn anything. But the big publisher, the conventional publishers, they're, they're, they're engines with this, you know, with teams doing this, that, and the other. Uh, and even though I'd sort of done my research, you then sort of begin to realize, oh my goodness, you know, I'm part of this huge machine and they're publishing like five books a week, you know. So to get attention at all is, uh, is great. And, and I can't, you know, absolutely delighted with the support I've had but you just realize, oh gosh, this is a much bigger industry than as a writer or a reader you ever really imagined. Mm. And finally, you have kind of told us already, but I wonder whether you could remind us or tell us a little bit more about the new novel that you're working on now. Oh, that's such a nice question, Chloe, because as you know, as a writer, you, you get much as you love your, you know, your published work, hopefully, <laughs> Um, you, you know, you're always so into what you're writing now. And I, I'm, you know, I've, I've done a thousand words this morning, so I'm quite reasonably at kind of like, that's, that's enough to tuck away. I hopefully do some more. Um, but um, yeah, so it's Mary Wortley Montague. I mentioned she, I realised how much she was the inspiration. You know, one reason for writing this novel is because the publisher said, you know, actually, you know, you're, your book's doing well, we really hope it will do even better, you know, come paperback and everything. Um, but, you know, people will want a book that's, you know, reasonably similar. And, and I do write in lots of different genres and, uh, and, and time periods. Um, but, it, you know, when they said we, we'd kind of like something that's, very, uh, you know, in the same ballpark, I just went back and thought, oh, my goodness, Mary Wortley Montague. And, and so I've read everything about Mary. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I have uh, some, some of my writing friends um, have produced a fabulous book and it's also a, a daily tweet um, called On This Day She. Um, so it's, it's um, Joe Bell, Tanya Hirschman and Elsa Holland, who, and this has been a sort of labour of love of theirs for years. And it's now a book you can buy, a fabulous book. And it's the story of a different woman every day. And although some of them are well-known historical figures, the, their real, I mean, they should speak for themselves, but their real aim was to put women back in history. I think, I think the subject, you know, putting women back in history one page at a time. And I just realized Mary is, 
I mean, some people have heard of her, but she really is a woman who's been written out of history, I think, largely, because her life is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, uh, she would have been, the, you know, the classic A-list celeb in the sort of 1720s, especially. She was a friend of Alexander Pope, of Robert Walpole. Uh, she, she, she knew everyone. She knew, met Voltaire, you know, all those things. But that's just celebrity. But she wrote, I mean, she had this massive dispute with Pope, which subsequently was, was sort of represented as a sort of romantic tiff. And I think, no, she was an inter a real intellectual. And she used to parody some of Pope's more pompous work. And, and of course, it would fall into the wrong hands. And I'm, and in, you know, I'm sure that the truth is that, that it was an intellectual dispute because she was every bit as talented. Um, she she w uh, went to Turkey with her. Well, she probably got him the job, to be honest, because she was a very good operator as he was the British ambassador in Turkey from 1716 to 18, a short time because he was recalled because I don't think he was terribly good at the job. But, you know, she wrote these letters uh, which weren't published until after her, her death um, 40 years later, but they're sensational. And, you know, they, they show, you know, they're all the, they made, they made people here understand Islam in a way that they never understood it before, the role of women, um, she just sort of, uh, she campaigned for, for women's rights long before that was really a thing. I mean, there were some others, um, you know, some of whom were her friends, but, but um, and she brought smallpox inoculation back to England and campaigned really hard to get it taken up. Everyone at school is taught about Edward Jenner. Who's taught about Mary Wortley Montague? No one. And then she had this incredibly inappropriate affair uh, when she was almost 50, which in itself is... So I adore her. I love writing about her. I really hope that um, the book sort of gets this amazing woman known better um, because to me, she's a hero, really. Well, your passion is evident and it makes me really excited to read it, Sean. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, it's been such a joy and so lovely to, to talk, Chloe. That was Sean Lusk talking about his historical novel, The Second Sight of Zachary Cloudsley, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.